All right. Welcome to episode three of You Are What You Read podcast. I'm Max. I'm Luke. Today we are reading chapter three of Become What You Are by Alan Watts, The Finger and the Moon. Luke, go ahead and start us off here. The Finger and the Moon. There is an old Christian phrase, Crux Medicina Mundi, the cross, the medicine of the world, a phrase which is rather remarkable in that it suggests that religion is a medicine rather than a diet. The difference is, of course, that medicine is something to be taken occasionally, like penicillin, whereas a diet is regular food. Perhaps this analogy cannot be pressed too far, since there are medicines like insulin, which some people have to take all the time. But there is a point to the analogy, a point expressed in another Latin saying, not at all Christian, since its author was Lucretius, tantum religio patuit suadere malorum. Too much religion is apt to encourage evil. I am not thinking so much of the exploitation of the poor by a corrupt priesthood, or the obvious evils of zealotry and fanaticism. I am thinking rather of the old Buddhist metaphor of the doctrine which is like a raft for crossing a river. When you have reached the opposite shore, you do not carry the raft on your back, but leave it behind. There is something here which applies not only to the mere handful of people who might be said to have reached the opposite shore, but to most of us. To carry out the metaphor a little, if you are going to cross the river, you must make haste, for if you dally on the raft, the current will carry you downstream and out to the ocean, and then you will be stuck on the raft forever. And it is so easy to get stuck on the raft, on religion, on psychotherapy, on philosophy. To use another Buddhist simile, the doctrine is like a finger pointing at the moon, and one must take care not to mistake the finger for the moon. Too many of us, I fear, suck the pointing finger of religion for comfort instead of looking where it points. Now it seems to me that what the finger of religion points at is something not at all religious. Religion, with all its apparatus of ideas and practices, is altogether a pointing, and it does not point at itself. It doesn't point at God either, for the notion of God is part and parcel of religion. I might say that what religion points at is reality, except that this merely puts a philosophical notion in place of a religious one. And I can think of a dozen other substitutes for God or reality. I could say that it points at one's true self, at the eternal now, at the nonverbal world, at the infinite and ineffable. But really, none of this is very helpful. It's just putting one finger in place of another. When Joshua asked his teacher, Nansen, what is the Tao, the way? Nansen replied, your everyday mind is the Tao. But this doesn't help either, for as soon as I try to understand what is meant by my everyday mind, and then try to latch onto it, I am just sucking another finger. But why does this difficulty arise? If someone actually points his finger at the moon, I have no difficulty in turning and looking at the moon. But the thing at which these religious and philosophical fingers are pointing seems to be invisible, so that when I turn to look, there is nothing there, and I am forced to go back to the finger to see whether I understood its direction correctly. 
And sure enough, I find time and time again that I made no mistake about its direction. But for all this, I simply cannot see what it's pointing at. All this is equally exasperating for the person who is doing the pointing, for he wants to show me something which, to him, is so obvious that one would think any fool could see it. He must feel, as we all feel, when trying to explain to a thick-headed child that two times zero is zero and not two, or some other perfectly simple little fact. And there is something even more exasperating than this. I am sure that many of you may, for a fleeting moment, have had one clear glimpse of what the finger was pointing at, a glimpse in which you shared the pointer's astonishment that you had never seen it before, in which you saw the whole thing so plainly that you knew you could never forget it, and then you lost it. After this there may be a tormenting nostalgia that goes on for years, how to find the way back, back to the door in the wall that no longer seems to be there, back to the turning which led into paradise, which wasn't on the map, which you saw for sure right here. But now there is nothing. It is like trying to trace someone with whom you fell in love at first sight and then lost touch. And you go back to the original place of meeting again and again, trying in vain to pick up the threads. If I may put it in a way which is horribly cumbersome and inadequate, that fleeting glimpse is the perception that suddenly some very ordinary moment of your ordinary everyday life lived by your very ordinary self just as it is and just as you are. That this immediate here and now is perfect and self-sufficient beyond any possibility of description. You know that there is nothing to desire or seek for, that no techniques, no spiritual apparatus of belief or discipline is necessary, no system of philosophy or religion. The goal is here. It is this present experience, just as it is. That, obviously, is what the finger was pointing at. But the next moment, as you look again, the instant in which you are living is as ordinary as ever, though the finger still points right at it. However, this irritatingly elusive quality of the vision to which the finger points has an extremely simple explanation. An explanation which has to do with what I said at the beginning about getting rid of the raft when you have crossed the river, about taking religion as a medicine, but not as a diet. For purposes of understanding this point, we must take the raft as representing the ideas or words or other symbols whereby a religion or a philosophy expresses itself, whereby it points at the moon of reality. As soon as you have understood the words and their plain and straightforward sense, you have already used the raft. You have reached the opposite bank of the river. All that remains now is to do what the words say, to drop the raft and go walking on the dry land. And to do this, you must drop the raft. In other words, you cannot at this stage think about religion and practice it at the same time. To see the moon, you must forget the pointing finger and simply look at the moon. This is why all the great Asian philosophies begin with the practice of concentration, that is, of attentive looking. It is as if to say, if you want to know what reality is, you must look directly at it and see for yourself. But this needs a certain kind of concentration, because reality is not symbols, 
It is not words and thoughts. It is not reflections and fantasies. Therefore, to see it clearly, your minds must be free from wandering words and from the floating fantasies of memory. To this we are probably apt to reply, fine, but this is easier said than done. There always seems to be a problem about translating words into action. And this problem seems to be peculiarly acute when it comes to the so-called spiritual life. Faced with this problem, we back up and start to busy ourselves with a lot of discussion about methods, techniques, and other aids to concentration. But it should be simple enough to see that this is nothing but procrastination and postponement. You cannot at the same time concentrate and think about concentrating. It sounds almost silly to say it, but the only way to concentrate is to concentrate. And actually doing it, the idea of doing it disappears. And this is the same thing as saying that religion disappears when it becomes real and effective. Now a great deal of the talk about difficulty of action or the difficulty of concentration is sheer nonsense. If we are sitting down together at a meal and I say to you, please pass the salt, you just do it, and there is no difficulty about it. You do not stop to consider the right method. You do not trouble yourself with the problem of how. When you have picked the salt shaker up, you are going to be able to concentrate on it long enough to bring it to my end of the table. Now there is absolutely no difference between this and concentrating the mind's attention to see into the nature of reality. If you can concentrate the mind for two seconds, you can do it for two minutes. And if you can do it for two minutes, you can do it for two hours. Of course, if you want to make this kind of thing horribly difficult, you begin to think about timing yourself. Instead of concentrating, you begin to think about whether you are concentrating, about how long you have been concentrated, and about how much longer you are going to keep it up. All this is totally off the point. Concentrate for one second. If at the end of this time, your mind has wandered off, concentrate for another second, then another. Nobody ever has to concentrate for more than one second. This one. This is why it is quite literally off the point to time yourself, to compete with yourself, and to bother about your progress and success in the art. It's simply the old story of making a difficult job easy by taking it one step at a time. There is perhaps another difficulty, and this is that in the state of concentration, of clear, unwavering attention, one has no self, that is, no self-consciousness. This is because the so-called self is a construct of words and memories, of fantasies, that have no existence in immediate reality. The block or stoppage which so many of us feel between words and actions, between symbol and reality, is actually a case of wanting to have one's cake and eat it. We want to enjoy ourselves, and fear that if we forget ourselves there will be no enjoyment and entertainment without anyone present to be entertained. This is why self-consciousness is a constant inhibition of creative action, a kind of chronic self-frustration, such that civilizations which suffer from an overdose of it go raving mad, invent atom bombs, and blow themselves up. Self-consciousness is a stoppage because it is like interrupting a song after every note so as to listen to the echo, and then feeling irritated because of the loss of rhythm. 
This is all really a case of our own proverb. A watched pot never boils. For if you try to watch your mind concentrate, it will not concentrate. And if, when it is concentrated, you begin to watch for the arrival of some insight into reality, you have stopped concentrating. Real concentration is therefore a rather curious and seemingly paradoxical state, since it is at once the maximum of consciousness and the minimum of ego feeling, which somewhat gives the lie to those systems of Western psychology which identify the conscious principle with the ego. Similarly, it is the maximum of mental activity or efficiency, and the minimum of mental purposiveness, since one can not simultaneously concentrate and expect a result from concentration. The only way to enter into this state is precipitately, without delay or hesitation, just to do it. This is why I ordinarily avoid discussion of all the various kinds of Asian meditation techniques, such as yoga, for I am inclined to feel that for most Westerners, these are not aids but obstacles to concentration. It is not unaffected and natural for us to assume the lotus posture and go through all sorts of spiritual gymnastics. So many Westerners who do this kind of thing are so self-conscious about it, so preoccupied with the idea of doing it, that they never really do it at all. For the same reason, I am rather leery of too much Zen, especially when it means importing all the purely incidental apparatus of Zen from Japan, all the strictly technical formalities, and all the endless and pointless discussion about who has or hasn't attained Satori, or about how many koans one has solved, or how many hours a day one sits in zazen or meditation. This sort of thing is not Zen or yoga, it is just a fad, just religiosity, and is precisely self-consciousness and affectation rather than unself-consciousness and naturalness. If, however, you can really do the thing itself, that is, if you can learn to wake up and concentrate at the drop of a hat, you can take or leave the trimmings as you will. For the fear of exoticism should not prevent us from enjoying the really beautiful things which Asian culture has to offer. Chinese painting, Japanese architecture, Indian philosophy, and all the rest. But the point is that we cannot really enter into the spirit of these things at all unless, in the first place, we can acquire the special kinds of relaxed concentration and clear-sightedness which is essential for their proper appreciation. Of themselves, they will not give us that capacity, which is something innate. If you have to import it from Asia, you do not have it at all. Therefore, the important thing is simply to begin, anywhere, wherever you are. If you happen to be sitting, just sit. If you are smoking a pipe, just smoke it. If you are thinking out a problem, just think. But don't think and reflect unnecessarily, compulsively, from sheer force of nervous habit. In Zen, they call this having a leaky mind, like an old barrel with open seams which cannot contain itself. Well, I think this is enough medicine for tonight, so let's put the bottle away and go out and look at the moon. Awesome chapter. Thank you, Alan Watts. A lot to digest there, that's for sure. And a look into... Alan Watts as an individual.
and his individualist way of thinking. And essentially that last, you know, page and a half calling out the modernization of Eastern philosophies mm -hmm. and turning them into religions and turning them into something that we do almost to prove ourselves that we can do it or to get better at something when the entire point if you and then he kind of says like if you've done the studying if you actually understand it you understand that that has nothing to do with it mm -hmm. which has been something I've been preaching for a very long time yeah and to take I mean take the trimmings as you will is kind of what he said yeah. and um, there's all kinds of different practices from all over the world really mm -hmm. and try stuff yeah definitely try stuff and take what works and leave what doesn't correct and there's no formula that you know you're not going to do this this and that and it's very individualized and what what allows you to connect and maybe it's something completely individual that no other spiritual philosophy has encountered that just Max does. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it that I see is kind of like what, how he ended out the, the chapter and saying, like, if you're sitting, just sit. If you're smoking a pipe, just smoke it. Like, leave the concentration mm -hmm. about it out. Just yeah. do it. Because in earlier in the reading... And leave the monitoring. Leave the monitoring. Yeah. Leave everything else. Is this else. right? Yeah, leave every... Am I doing this right? Am I sitting right? Am I eating right? Mm -hmm. Do I appear to be right? Like, because you only have one second at a time. Mm -hmm. If you're able to just focus on the second, if you're able to be in the second, then, like, you're achieving something. And if it happens to go away in the next second, like, just bring yourself back to the conscious moment in this second. Yeah. You know, and, like, if you're sitting there, just sit. And if you lose this fact that you know that you're just sitting, doing nothing else but sitting and existing, and all of a sudden you're wondering about what's going on here or there, how you, how you appear, what's going to be for dinner tonight, what's this, what's that, bring yourself just to the pure thought of sit in a chair. Yeah, and that's part of it. Correct. Your mind wandering in meditation is part of it. And, and the ability to draw yourself back absolutely. into the concentration is really one of the main Well, that's the beauty of, and like what he's talking about there when he's saying like, if you know what you're talking about, like you know what you're practicing, like practice it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of, there's a huge misconception on meditation as being a strong concentration on something. Right. It's the absence of all. It's a connection with your divine, mm. which is encompassing everything. So it's really the removal of concentration. The second that you're concentrating, you're, you're gauging it to something else. So when you lose your concentration, you weren't meditating in the first place. You were just thinking really hard. Mm -hmm. you know, Or you were just so deep in one rabbit hole. Yeah. You're trying so hard to achieve an end result. Right. The end result of meditation, there is no end result. It'd be ascension. Right. It's it's life's over. Yeah. To put it cheesily, it's like a journey, not a Cor destination. Correct. And, and it's like, yeah, you know, I'm going to meditate on this. It's like, okay, well, 
It's you, not so. And so here's something that's that. I've talked to a number of people that that we're both close with mm-hmm. who talk to me about meditation in in their own meditative practices. And when they pray their mala, and they have an intention set out on their mala, or they have an intention set within the meditation. The intention is everything you do outside of meditation. That's where that chanting comes into play. Mm-hmm. Is everything else you do outside of that sacred space between you and the divine. Yeah. Meditation is a, a complete connection into what I call God. Whatever that is for you, that is for you. But I, I'm gonna, in this matter, I'm going to call it God because that's what it is for me. Mm-hmm. Is is me accessing the Christ Consciousness Center within my third eye, in having breaking bread with God, nothing else. Chanting allows me to achieve that. It's what I'm doing physically. It's the actual action of me doing something to get to a meditative state. Mm-hmm. But I'm not in meditation while I'm doing those things. I'm preparing myself for the meditation. The complete losing, focusing on the moon. Losing losing track of my finger. Mm-hmm. That's the chanting. Yeah. That's the intention. That's the reason why I'm looking. Now I leave all of that behind and I just go to the moon in the reference for here. And that to me is God. That's my purpose in, in meditation. The hours that I spend meditating, I, I have I have a hard time meditating with other people because other people like to chant and have this whole thing and they do this whole hullabaloo and these rituals and all this. And like that's what I do in my everyday life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I'm trying to work through something sensory overload anything like that difficulties at work that's when i bring my chanting in that's when i bring the intention that i have towards my mala is the remembrance of why i went and broke bread with god this morning yeah why i'm gonna break bread with god again tonight and so max is a meditation teacher correct and i would say i'm one of your students in a way Absolutely. And one of the things that, and he's great, by the way, one (laughs) of the things that you've talked about in front of people that are, I don't even know that new to meditation is the right way to put it, but just kind of have a preconceived notion about what it looks like. Of their own personal practice. Yeah. But is, is like... Oh, meditation is being in the lotus position with your eyes closed. You know, to some people, it's in complete silence. To other people, it's listening to... A guided uh, meditation, right, right. ambient sounds, whatever. And meditation is none of those things. Meditation is absolutely none of those things. Yeah. It's everything. Mm-hmm. It's... And then, like, it's another point that, that brings me to it, like, because he talked about it, and I'm, I do a lot of, I've done extensive research and reading and, and practicing into the, the Vedic sciences and, and Hindu culture and the, that Eastern philosophies that Alan Watts is talking about <laughs> in here. Not so much um, outside of India, Um the Vedic sciences is kind of where I found my niche, but yeah. I have a, a deep understanding of, of Taoism, of Buddhism, um, 
Zen, you know, a little bit of the, the, the Asian influence upon philosophy. And one of the first things that, that I recognized in, in a previous time that I've read this chapter was when he's talking about the Asian cultures, he doesn't talk about religion. He talks about philosophy. Yeah. And it's because those are just ways of life there. Everything that they do is based in those ideas from their work to the placement of their marriages to literally everything is based within this very set way of life where a religion is what he's talking about is like that's the diet the philosophy is the diet the religion the actual okay. ordained yeah. aspect of it would be a westerner coming into a hindu temple and wanting to attend a service there are no services mm -hmm. there's ceremonies they, they pay homage to deities mm -hmm. on specific days of the year. A Dharma talk is not a ceremony. It's not a service. It's not like the Sunday service. They don't have it every Sunday. Westerners have modified it to, uh, to apply to their idea of religion. Yeah. When it's just a way of life. You can walk into a temple in India on a, a Tuesday morning with no intention of all of a sudden being in an all-day festival. And there's only 50 people there in a city of 100 million. Mm -hmm. But it's they're paying homage to a deity for that day. Yeah. No set way. In that temple. In yeah. that temple. Yeah. Because that's what the Vedic sciences call for. That's what the Vedic literature says to do. So... I kind of would like to sort of yeah. segue somewhat into the earlier part of the chapter Perfect. with the raft metaphor, yes. right? And what you're talking about, the way that Westerners, whatever, it doesn't even need to be just Westerners, but people carry that raft with them, stay on the river, stay looking at the, at the finger rather yep. than the yep. moon, right? However you want to put it, is that develops into a part of this person's identity which is a manifestation of this self-consciousness yeah. which if you had the moon if you were looking at the moon if you got off the raft if you let go of that stuff that's the identity that you're letting go of that's mm. the self-consciousness yeah. you're letting go of absolutely and, and a lot of that comes to, uh, where did I see it? I mean, I don't even need to find it. The idea of maintaining an image is something that, and the, and the reason why it's, it's always referred to the Westerners as, as coming in, it, it's, it's literally just purely because of geographical location, but Minus indigenous Americans, there's no practice of Western original philosophy anymore. It was eliminated to try to create something that wasn't there. That's where religion took place. Yeah, the institution. The institution of religion took place. And, and we all know 
if I mean maybe not everyone knows because there's a huge sect of people that have zero idea about like Spanish Inquisition or anything because they're just filled they're they were they went to public education systems where there was books that was created that just kind of painted one picture yeah so there's there is a big sect of people that don't have an understanding of what took place and why there is no not I can't say there's none because pagans still exist but it's generations removed and all of a sudden trying to reestablish itself as, mm-hmm. as, a, as an organized way of life. Mm-hmm. And there's very small sects of groups of people that, that exist within that kind of that Nordic culture. Um, but Westerners had to seek Eastern philosophies because those existed And to take it into like a, a deeper idea is that we then created Christianity we stole something completely from Eastern philosophy and developed it into something that appeased the masses, that mm-hmm. controlled the masses. So by just looking, that's at the big spectrum. Now you take it down to a personal spectrum, right? It's what we do when when we're focusing on the appearance of what we're doing. It's like a, a Catholic going to church on Easter Sunday, just Sundays minus football season, in Christmas, mm-hmm. christenings, first Holy Communions, whatever you know what I mean, like just major holidays, and then once a year going to confession. That's to uh, attain a, a religious appearance. Mm-hmm. Now, what they do is they don't live a spiritual life. They don't act as the Bible calls for them to act. And then the people that we do see act as the Bible calls for them. Act. I'm kind of sticking to Christianity because it's a really easy target right. because they yeah, fucking yeah. They just they're not. Great. And and that's what we correct grew up in yeah. a lot of ways surrounded by. I grew but, up raised Catholic. Right. You know, so I, I saw this all firsthand. Um. But what happened? What happens is then we see the the radical religious, that their entire identity is their religion. Yeah, fanaticism. Fanaticism, but even down to fundamental, yeah. but then even like orthodox. Okay. Yeah. It's yeah, just, yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? It's their entire everything about them. Now they live a very spiritual life, but they don't represent a spiritual aspect. And and that's like the so religion, religious has kind of a connotation of obviously we're talking about this philosophy, this way of life, whatever. Correct. But it also just means like doing something religiously, doing it habitually, Correct. however, and that is kind of superimposing that aspect, doing something religiously on some of these spiritual ideas and spiritual yes. practices is how you get the religion. Correct. So I wanted to ask you something. Yeah. You said twice spiritual life. So what does that mean to you? To me, it's living your truth. It's living your truth and not living in an ego. Mm-hmm. In, in a spiritual life, you have no ego. Everything goes through God. Your will doesn't exist. Now... A religious life your will exists mm-hmm. you have to do everything you have to do everything and essentially pay homage to God mm-hmm. the self-consciousness of the ego correct putting on the appearance however you correct want to. Yeah. right so if I 
if I'm forcing myself to appear spiritual, what usually happens is we change the way that we look. We dress a, a, spe, a specific way. Um, we, we do things that are out of our comfort zone, which are no longer being our true selves. Now, some of like the most enlightened people that I've came across, you walking down the street, you wouldn't think that they're a monk. Mm-hmm. Because also they're in the United States or they're in a Western culture where it's they, they don't have to wear their traditional garb. And if they do, it's very subtle. You know, you just think, oh, that's a man from India or that's a man from the Middle East is essentially what a lot of people would think. You don't mm-hmm. think that this is someone who has renounced absolutely every worldly possession and is here to teach the message of his people. Or just is here to, you know, because he was asked to give blessings upon somebody, whatever, you know, and I've had this same conversation, not same conversation, but similar conversation with like Jainist monks. Where yeah. They have, these are the people that a lot of them come from very royal families and they give up everything and become a Jainist monk. Yeah. They, they, they take on the Jain uh, renunciation and... To me, that's not living a spiritual life. Jainism? It, at the extent of eliminating who you are. Okay. Discrediting, which I get, like, and don't get me wrong, like, what they do eventually is amazing. There's, there's a, a really a beautiful written book called uh, A River Sutra that's about a, a royal, a prince, essentially, renouncing everything and becoming a Jainist monk mm-hmm. and and his his path to it and like throughout it like you can see where it it goes from wanting to be something that he's not right yeah. Yeah. so he renounces everything and then you you walk along the river with him and you see all the different people that he meets and all the different life experiences that he has as a beggar Essentially, because right, now right. he has nothing, and that's in right. like to be a Janus monk, like you literally you're thrown to the streets. You're not given any food. You're not given any real instruction. It's just everything that you did before no longer do that. Mm-hmm. It's a very strict way of life by having absolutely nothing, and you're not allowed to like keep anything. You're not allowed to attain anything. Yeah, you're not allowed to eat unless it was going given. to be. Well, it, or it could be given to you. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. It could be yeah. given. So it's it's basically you're a beggar. So like you rely on the people, mm-hmm. but it's so you can give back to the people. Now there's a whole deeper message behind all of it. It's it's a life of service. It's a mm-hmm. life of servitude that you're learning. But by the end of it, it's almost like he became the person he truly was by shedding so many layers of ego mm-hmm. and understanding that he carries a royal bloodline. But he doesn't need to have the view of royalty. The mm-hmm. understanding of royalty, which he didn't have previously, that bloodline is, is something to be sought out after. It's a, it's a, it's a badge of honor in, in that culture, mm-hmm. right? Where that still exists, where monarchy and patriarchy still exists. Like, it's a badge of honor to have. Not everybody has it. Not everybody d- gets that ability. Mm-hmm. You don't, you, not even marrying into it are you treated the same. To carry that is, is a very special thing, but to make that your entire identity is something completely different. Is non-spiritual. Is right? non-spiritual, yeah. but it's a religious aspect. 
in the same way as all of a sudden giving up everything and forgetting who you are and not living your truth because you have to develop a truth. There's a long period of your life where you have no idea who you are and what you are and what you're supposed to be doing and you go back and forth and it takes all of these awakenings to to come to a realization of who you truly are and it's a long time coming but it's going from what could have been a spiritual life as a as a as royalty mm -hmm. to absolutely abandoning everything you've ever known for however many years it takes and having the potential that it never happened like all of a sudden you've just changed absolutely everything about yourself and have now lived a somewhat negative life experience mm -hmm. without absolutely knowing but that's where the faith in god comes yeah. in yeah where is this going to take me it's going to take it's me where having I'm to absolutely to be. trust yeah. you know what i mean so there's a lot of people that want to do that type of a thing to renounce and become these things but these are also the people that we run into that make the news headlines nowadays and are all over being that we're in an age of social media and it just the access like these are people that make the mistakes is that they they were trying to force themselves into a religious idea thinking that they were going into a religion and all of a sudden going to be saved mm -hmm. and that this was going to alter their entire life but they did it in ego yeah they're looking at in the reference of this chapter they're looking at the finger the entire time yeah never took the second to just say yeah, okay, like the i'm sucking directing. on the finger yeah i'm sucking on the finger what's why why am i not yeah. enlightened yeah why am i not awake now yeah so there's um in uh so i want to kind of point out i've never read that book a river sutra yeah but it kind of reminds me in some ways of the book siddhartha yes and part of it's you know similar thing and then the character siddhartha um goes through a period of time um as an aesthetic yeah. and asceticism is whether it's like purposely physically hurting yourself whether it's depriving yourself of food of material possessions however you want to put it kind of uh hurting yourself in these ways with the idea that there is uh spirituality to be gained from it mm -hmm. and i've always had an interesting kind of relationship with this because like with, with this idea because um in some ways it seems like it makes sense and it seems like oh well these people have been doing this for however long uh so it must be but i think that um there's an aspect to it and this kind of goes into another piece of literature which we'll probably get into on this podcast by Eckhart Tolle and he talks about the pain body which is this accumulation of all of the painful experiences you've had and you know it's this kind of visceral manifestation in a way and every so every once in a while it needs to feed is mm -hmm. essentially and so you grow out and create drama in your life um is essentially right and so it's like okay there's an aspect with my understanding of asceticism viewing it from the outside that is like there is uh actually like ego involved in that process absolutely and this kind of comes into the life of the Buddha who renounced 
royalty. Yeah. Right. And this, there was, there's other parts of the story. And, but anyways, went and became an ascetic and realized eventually when he reached enlightenment that there was a middle way. There was a balance between Correct. asceticism and, um, yeah, I think I think it's interesting because this kind of points at the 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 finger in the moon and what practices am I doing? Am I doing it because someone else tells me to do it? It's like, oh, well that physical harm, that physical deprivation is something that people are doing, something that they've talked about for quite a while. Um, but am I actually going to be gaining what it is that they they tell me I'm going to gain. And I think part of that is like you get into that place and you realize that it's not, you're not saved. Yeah. You're not, it's not the whole picture. You're not, you know, if I go and sit in the lotus position and close my, close my eyes and put on the track and just expect that it's all going to fit into place, it's like, no, I need no. to really, exactly. I need to figure out what works for me. I need to, and obviously it's like, as simple as concentrating but maybe it doesn't work to concentrate in that specific way i'm not going to get where i need to be correct it's uh it's quite the the paradox to to Mm -hmm. put yourself in you know it's uh there's a lot to that and that's why when i've been asked by people if i if i ever want to take a vow um to, to take on the life of a monk mm-hmm. or or of of a minister or of a brother or of a swami it's it's something that I can't ever really truly answer but I can say that as of now in my life that's not my calling cuz through my spiritual practices and my spiritual life that's not the direction of the moon for me mhm Mm-hmm. You know, and that I, but I never closed that off. You know, and it's like I'm, I'm a six-six white male, when I when it comes down to it, I was not born in, in the East. I'm not of Asian descent. This life. And, I leave that to the people. And my belief today is that I leave that to the people who it runs within them. My life right now is of an American. Yeah. An American who wants to know what the world has to offer, but never abandons who I am in representing my culture, representing my upbringing, which is different. And now at one point that may coincide, but today that's not that day because the moon for me, my focal point on the moon is not there. Yeah. This is something that's resonated with me my entire life and has always been kind of like the bending of physics essentially for me. Mm-hmm. This is like the black hole that I've never been able to fully understand. And it's and it's in the case where he says, this is really a case of our own proverb. A watch pot never boils. For you, for if you try to watch your mind concentrate, it will not concentrate. 
and if when it's concentrated you begin to watch for the arrival of some insight into reality you have stopped concentrating real concentration is therefore a rather curious and seemingly paradoxical state since it is at once the maximum of consciousness and the minimum of ego feeling which somewhat gives the lie to those symptoms of western psychology which identifies the conscious principle with the ego similarly it is it is the maximum of mental activity or efficiency and the minimum of mental purposiveness since one cannot simultaneously concentrate and expect a result from concentration now it wasn't me watching the the pot boil it was going on road trips as a kid we drove everywhere mm-hmm the way there always took so much longer than the way back. Because I was concentrating on the end result. I wanted to get there. I had this idea made up already on how amazing this trip was going to be. Yeah. An escape from my reality. Mm-hmm. My everyday life. But on the way back, I didn't give a shit. I just sat in the car. Just drove across the country. Minding my own business. I wasn't concentrating on the destination. Mm-hmm. And the return home was always much sweeter for me. The actual arrival to the destination after sometimes days of being in the vehicle yeah. without that anxious feeling existing, without the, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yeah. yet? You know, and this comes mm. from as, as far back as I can remember, that feeling of going to Disneyland Driving to the beach, I mean, leaving northern New Mexico to get to coastal California is Mm -hmm. like a 12-hour drive, 13-hour drive. And for a four- or five-year-old, it's a long time. Driving to the the Great Lakes and the Upper Peninsula, days. Driving to the south, going to visit grandma and wanting to see grandma, you know, driving to the east coast. You know, going to New York City and, like, leaving New Mexico, that's like a five-day trip. Yeah. And those were the longest five days of my life. Those were the, that was the longest 12 hours of my life, whatever. But on the way back, it was nothing. Because on the way back, it, it's like I would read my book, I'd play with my toys, I would just focus on what is currently going on around me. Yeah. The end result was no longer the desired effect. And I realized that the desired effect was not that great to begin with like it was just another existence it was just another time in my life another story another memory to have and that was me having purposiveness the purpose the action of having a, a mental purpose allowing my mind to have some idea brewing for five days waiting my arrival but on the way back that was gone i was just existing I was just going along with for the ride. And that trip back was always so much more pleasurable. I wasn't needing to go to the bathroom every five minutes. I wasn't hungry all the time. I wasn't antsy, dancing around in the back seat, having my dad get angry at me. I would sleep a lot better in the back of the car. It was just, I was chilling. Present. And it's happened as an adult. I've driven all across this country as an adult by myself with my animals. And on the way there, it's always one problem after the next. After the next, it took longer than I originally planned because I got sidetracked on this thing, trying to distract myself Mm -hmm. from that idea of an end result. Mm -hmm. And always on the way back home, smooth sailing.
that's that same idea for me. Yeah. You know, and it's in those moments where I want to reflect back and just see that even when I have a destination to get to, I know the end result of this current stage of my life, enjoying the ride and just being along for the ride and letting go of the the metaphorical wheel always makes life so much easier. Yeah. That's about all I got. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening, guys. Uh, like, subscribe, follow. Write your comments. Uh, if you're reading along with us, you know, and you have your own takes or you want to add into it, don't hesitate to, to shoot us a message. Thanks.